Five years ago, I had a colonoscopy, and the doctor took me into a room and told me that I had cancer, and she scared me really well. I had surgery and never had to have any treatments, and I'm cancer-free today. But I'm just wondering what it would be like to be sitting in a doctor's office and to be told that you had a terminal disease and that you only had 30 days to live. Like, what would be going through your mind? What do you think you would need to change in your life during those final 30 days? Like, would you be challenged to make some adjustments in how you spend each day of your life? Like, we're starting a new teaching series called One Month to Live. And Carrie Shook and his wife Chris actually wrote a book by that same name. And I want to assure you up front that the target audience for this series of messages isn't those who are going to die in 30 days, whether they know it or not. And it's also not an attempt to get a preemptive deathbed confession in your final days. But think about it. What if you knew that you only had one month to live? This question forces us to define what we consider to be the most important in our lives. Is maybe there a relationship that you value the most? Or is it family? Is it your job? Is it your faith? Maybe you have a desire to travel somewhere or write a book. Or maybe you need to ask someone for forgiveness. Every one of us will eventually die. But the problem is that most people aren't experiencing enjoyable and fulfilling lives. And it's not because of some shocking diagnosis that they received. It's because they're suffocating themselves with too many items on their to-do list, too many places to go, too many commitments that they're actually resulting in a paralyzed joy. So if you only had 30 days left, it would dramatically alter how you spent your time and how you would also have a renewed sense of urgency about things. So we're going to look at five different challenges over the next five weeks. And today we're going to talk about living passionately. And that's how we can have the energy and the drive to be the person that God wants us to be. It's how we can be the church that God wants us to be. People waste their lives. They live with no passion and joy, but it's never too late to start. Albert Einstein said, What is sad is when something dies inside of a man while he is still living. And this is what Carrie Shook wrote. He said, Often we're tempted to play it safe and settle for far less than we were made for. I know so many people whose favorite day of the week is someday. Countless people in every stage of life say, Someday I'm going to go for all that life has to offer. When I retire, then I'm going to enjoy life. Someday, I'm really going to live for God. Someday, I'll start loving my family better. Someday, when my schedule slows down, I'm going to get involved at church. Someday, one day, when, if, then it's over. When are we going to wake up and realize someday is right now? So there's a verse that we're going to key on in this series, and that is math from Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so we can grow in wisdom. 
But we each face different obstacles in our lives. And sometimes you may feel as if your life is an assembly line and you just keep walking on a treadmill or punching a time clock. Or maybe you realize that your life is just swamped and you've become so busy, you've become a workaholic. As your pastor, I want to challenge you to live as if you only had 30 days to live. So how would you alter your life? How would you start changing some of the decisions that you make as if we just had a few weeks to live? Like John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, But I came to give life in all its fullness. So he's saying, I want you to live a rich life. I want you to live a satisfying life, an abundant life. I want you to do just that. Like make advantage of every opportunity that you are given. Make your life count. Look at everything from an eternal perspective because such a lifestyle change would radically transform your life. So there are just three steps that I want to suggest that will help you to live passionately. First of all, choose a passion that will last until eternity. Like God has shaped us in unique ways. Like we have different gifts and abilities, different passions that we have, different experiences that we have all had. And all of these you know, help us have that specific passion for something. It's what makes your heart beat faster. And instead of wearing you down, it invigorates you and breathes new life into you. Like home renovations does this for me. It's my way to get away from everything else and just spend some time working on a project. And there are times when I should be exhausting myself because I still have to get my own work done. But that physical work invigorates me and it gives me a passion in an even greater way for what I do as a pastor. Jesus had a passion at an early age in his life. And that enthusiasm, I've actually put down the Greek word. It's entheos. It is God is within us. So in other words, God has wired us to do his work and to find a passion that really makes us soar. And at the age of 12, we see Jesus actually displaying this passion for his father. He was with his parents at the temple in Jerusalem, and he got separated from them. And then when his family finally found him, this is the explanation that he gave in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And his parents were so perplexed by that statement like because he said, Father's house, and they were thinking, okay, maybe he's down the road at a carpentry shop because his father has a carpentry shop, and maybe that's where he is. But he had to be about his father's business. He had to be in that temple. And we see that passion throughout his ministry. Even when he was headed to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to experience a brutal death, he still went. He demonstrated that passion in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed in Matthew 26, 42. And then Jesus went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this painful thing to be taken from me, and if I must do it, I pray that what you want 
will be done. So his passion was to do what his father wanted him to do. Now there's a huge lesson in there for us because we need to make certain that our passion is God-honoring. Like some passions are more noble than others. Any passion other than Christ just comes up short. And I can think of times in my lives, in my life, when God was saying, you know, no, Greg, stop, like don't do that. But in my pride and in my selfishness, I just barreled on ahead because I wanted to do it my way. But if you only have 30 days left to live, you're more apt to listen to that voice and obey it because you're passionate about living this life with the next one in mind. And that's one of the reasons why we're always encouraging people to get into community. And we talk about our life group ministry, and we talk about the importance of being with other believers, to encourage one another, to have Christian friendships. Back in 2011, we were averaging about 125 people And our building was really becoming a hindrance to our growth. And our leadership, we wanted to be able to reach more disciples. We wanted to make better disciples. But this building wasn't going to allow us to do it. So we came up with a vision, a a plan. We totally gutted the building and redesigned it so that we got more space out of it. And our elders and our pastors, we then passed that passion on to our next group of leaders. And that group of families responded to the challenge. They took on that passion as well. And I brought them all together in one home on a Friday evening for a time of challenge. And they pledged $130,000 that they would give over the next three years because they took on that passion. They wanted to see us reach that goal. Like we were thinking we would need to build a new building somewhere else. It was going to cost millions of dollars, but we were able to do this for 200000 And that group of people gave two-thirds of that money, so it set the tone for the whole congregation. We also need to pursue our passion wholeheartedly. Like we all have several interests and loves, and they receive a lot of our attention, but there's one that will receive the most. And I don't know why, but I'm still a fan of the Toronto Maple Leaf hockey team. I still collect hockey cards when Tim Hortons has hockey cards available in the fall of the year. I collect them. I get my family to collect them for me. I collect programs when I go to a sporting event. I like to keep the program as a souvenir. But back in 2005, my wife Pat and I celebrated our 25th anniversary And we went to New York City. We drove down. We watched a hockey game. We went to the garment district for a whole day. That was her thing. And then on the way home, Toronto Maple Leafs were playing in Boston. And my wife said, you want to stop in Boston and watch another hockey game? And after I got up from the floor, I said, yes, I'd love to do that. So we got some decent tickets and We're sitting there, we're watching the game, but she's more interested in the drama going on in the row in front of us. A young couple were breaking up, apparently. I was watching the hockey game. And then Pat said, would you get me some popcorn? I came to this game with you. So between periods, I went, got the popcorn, gave her my program, and I said, now watch this for me. 
So on the way back with the popcorn, I stepped on some vomit under the stands. Out goes my leg. I stretched a, a groin muscle. So I'm a little cranky when I get back to the seat. And there's my wife sitting on my program. And apparently when I told this story the first time, this was a little raw. And I didn't say there was a crease in my program. I said there was a huge bum print in my program. And my wife yells out, huge! And I was in much trouble over that. But there was a crease and my program was destroyed. But that was my passion. Our passion to serve God will last until eternity. Passion propels people. And we see it all the time. Like in the Summer Olympics that are coming up in Tokyo this summer, we will see people win a gold medal. And then they will talk about the dedication and the passion that went into winning that medal. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. All those who compete in the games use self-control so they can win a crown. That crown is an earthly thing that lasts only a short time. But our crown will never be destroyed. So when you only have one month to live, all of a sudden, those hockey programs, those gold medals, all those things pale in comparison. Instead, you choose a passion that will last until eternity. Now, the Old Testament is full of all kinds of stories of passion. And one of the best ones that I like is about three of David's top 30 warriors. Three of these guys of King David's really stood out. And David's mighty men displayed great passion for their leader by getting him a drink of water from a well in his hometown of Bethlehem. And here are the big three. I'm going to put their names up here. The first one is Adino the Esnite. Sorry. And this guy actually killed 800 men at one time. And then there was Shammah. Shammah stationed himself in the middle of a field, and when all of his comrades deserted him, he actually took on and defeated the Philistine army all by himself. And the last guy is Eliezer, the son of Dodo. And for obvious reasons, he had plenty of experience from childhood in fighting and learning to protect himself. And the Bible tells us that Eliezer fought so long that his sword was actually stuck to his hand. So all three of these guys are loyal warriors to King David. And the setting in 2 Samuel chapter 23 is that David's in a conflict with the Philistines and he remembers a cave that he had gone to years earlier when he was running and hiding from King Saul. And he decides to go back to the same spot, to that cave of Adullam. So he's just like, like a child when they play, you know, they go back to that same place over and over again. So the Philistines, they've attacked the southern part of Judah, and some of them were now living in David's hometown of Bethlehem. And if you played the part of the angel in the Christmas story when you were a child, you would have said those words. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So that is Bethlehem. So the account is found in Second Samuel 23. Once three of the thirty, David's chief soldiers, came down to him at the cave of Adullam during harvest. 
and the Philistine army had camped in the valley of Rephim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and some of the Philistines were in Bethlehem. David had a strong desire for some water, and he said, Oh, I wish someone would get me water from the well near the city of Bethlehem. Now, we all have cravings from when we grow up. For me, it's my mother's gumdrop cake. And didn't always have gumdrop cake because the gumdrops didn't always make it to the cake. I would eat them first. But maybe you have some uh, image of your grandmother making something for you when you went to visit her. So King David, he's thinking aloud. Like, I'm so close to my hometown. And, and I remember how great the water from that well tastes. And it would just be so nice if somebody went to get me some. But he said that out loud. And his three mighty men hear this. And they sneak off to the side. And they say to one another, like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yeah. He said, what have we got to lose? And I'm thinking maybe your life. But these guys head off. So in verse 16, So the three warriors broke through the Philistine army and took water from the well near the city gate of Bethlehem. Then they brought it to David. So can you just imagine them drawing the water from the well with one hand and then a sword in the other hand fighting off the enemy? And then they had to carry that water back to the cave all the while fighting against the enemy and not spilling the water. And then they had to kill anybody that was following them because they didn't want them to find out where King David was hiding. So they got to the cave, and then they say, special delivery for King David. And now David is oblivious to what has been going on, and then someone lights a torch, and he sees his three mighty warriors standing there, they're sweating, they're bloody, they're out of breath. And one of them reaches behind his back and he pulls out the water. And he bows down and he says, drink it, my Lord. And I think that you will be able to tell where it came from. Now David quickly realizes what these guys have passionately done. He realizes the passionate loyalty that they have to him. And continuing on in verse 16, but he refused to drink it. He poured it out before the Lord. So knowing that these men had risked their lives to get this water for him, he felt that he wasn't worthy to actually drink that water. The only person worthy of that water was the Lord. So he takes the water and he just pours it out onto the ground. And then he said in verse 17, May the Lord keep me from drinking this water. It would be like drinking the blood of the men who risked their lives. So he refused to drink it. So such were the exploits of the three mighty men who pursued their passion wholeheartedly. Their passion was to serve their king regardless of the cost. And that should be our passion, to serve our king regardless of the cost. In the Old New Testament, the Apostle Paul always pursued his passions wholeheartedly as well. And even before becoming a Christian, like he was a Jew, and every Jew that became a Christian, he persecuted them because he thought they were turning away from God. And then when God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, and he 
accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior and was converted into faith in him, all of a sudden that passion was still there. But he turned that around and his passion was bringing people to Christ. He had this newfound faith. He was passionate about Jesus. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, he actually urges us to be zealous for the Lord by saying, Do not be lazy, but work hard, serving the Lord with all your heart. And the New Testament paraphrases that, your spiritual fervor. So it's not your worldly excitement, because we take all kinds of risks in this world in order to follow our earthly passions. But those who follow their life passionately are willing to take spiritual faith risks. That's why from prison, Paul was able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like either way, my passion will be fulfilled. So let's look at one more step. And that is share your passion with others. Like Schubert said, what I possess in my heart, I will share with the world. And that should be understood. But whenever we watch professional athletes celebrate winning the championship in their sport, we see them lifting up the trophy over their heads. We see them screaming and they might be skating around or walking around on the floor, whatever uh, game they were playing. And then they keep passing it from one player to the other. And then they take it and they go off into their dressing room. They don't pass it around to the people that are there in the stands watching the game. They keep it to themselves. You see, passion doesn't do a whole lot of good if you just keep it to yourself. It flourishes when you involve others and when you share it with them. So how is it for you? Like, are you bold and passionate? Are you more concerned with spiritual correctness or social status or about pleasing everyone? Do you speak from your heart about your faith? Or do you just kind of tiptoe around it when it comes to your beliefs because you don't want to turn people off? The point is, if you have one month to live, you aren't going to concern yourself with the small things. You're going to not worry at all about what others think. You're not going to worry about them ridiculing you because of your beliefs because you know that very soon you are going to be with the King of Kings. So when you stand before the God of the universe, his opinion matters a whole lot more than acceptance by this sin-saturated society. One leper Jesus healed told everyone of his healing, even when Jesus actually asked him not to speak of it. And this story is in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A man with a skin disease came to Jesus. He fell to his knees and begged Jesus, you can heal me if you will. And Jesus felt sorry for the man. So he reached out his hand and touched him and said, I will be healed. And immediately the disease left the man and he was healed. So here's a man actually destined to live a life of loneliness and rejection. And Christ completely heals him of leprosy. Jesus told the man to go away at once, but he warned him strongly, don't tell anyone about this. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded for people who are made well. This will show the people what I have done. So he's basically saying, just keep this between you and me. Like Jesus knew that if the guy told other people 
then he wouldn't be able to move about freely. And that would restrict him from going to town to town and reaching the people that he wanted. So the man left there, but he began to tell everyone that Jesus had healed him. And so he spread the news about Jesus. And as a result, Jesus could not enter a town if people saw him. He stayed in places where nobody lived, but people came to him from everywhere. So the guy is told not to tell anybody, and he goes and tells everybody that he possibly can. Now, my grandson, Seth, and I enjoy doing a little bit of carpentry work. And I tell him, like, don't tell your mother that we're using power tools. But every time he blebs, he goes and tells her exactly what I've told him not to say. So this guy, he tells these people all about what Jesus has done and about the major transformation that has taken place in his life. The fact that Jesus has become his passion. Now, I'm not condoning his disobedience, but here's the point. He was told to close his mouth, and you've been told to open your mouth. So what are you going to do? Are you going to just keep simply coasting? Are you going to survive, or are you going to thrive? Are you lazy, or is your schedule crazy? I could make a rap out of that. Are you surviving or are you thriving? Is your schedule lazy or is it crazy? But, but, or are you passionately enjoying life, embracing the time you have left, making every moment count for the Lord? See, Jesus commissions us to share our passion, the gospel message, with all nations. That's why in Matthew 28 we have Jesus' words. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like There was a guy named Rich who went to Cincinnati Christian University, and he wasn't too impressed with organized religion, and he fought against any type of authority. And he was actually in his seventh year at this Christian university, and he only had enough credits to be considered a junior. But... So his academics weren't a strength, but he had an incredible music ability. And he loved the Lord, he loved people, and the mother of one of his fellow students died. And he didn't have a license, but he somehow found his way to Dayton, Ohio, and he just spent time with the family. He just stayed with them, spent a couple of days with them. And towards the end of it, he said, I wish I could say something that would just take this hurt away from you but, or give you something. But he said, all I can do is give you a song that I just wrote and hopefully it will minister to you. And he played the piano that was there and he sang a song for them and it touched them immensely. And two years later, a young Christian singer heard the song and she recorded it and her name was Amy Grant and the song was, Sing Your Praise to the Lord. And it just immediately rose to number one on the charts. And Rich Mullins, he kept writing, he kept singing. He was never impressed with himself, never impressed with his talents. He, towards the end of his uh, ministry, he wrote this song, Awesome God, which was later voted as the top Christian song of the 20th century. And then he took a vow of poverty. 
And he gave away millions of dollars in royalties so that he could reach out to the First Nations community in the United States so that he could reach them with the gospel. And he died tragically in a car accident at the age of 41, just after one of his concerts. Now, we probably still sing a few of his songs here, and his passion for life is still coming through in the music that he has left to us. And it's so fortunate that he didn't, at the age of 25, say, you know, I think I got this passion, but I think I'll wait until I'm 40 to pursue it. But he decided to pursue it passionately at that time. And we're so thankful that he seized the moment early on because you never know how long you were going to be on this earth. He didn't know that there was going to be just a month to live, so he made every day count. I said in my introduction that this isn't about a preacher scaring you into making a deathbed confession, and it's not. But if you want me to be completely honest, this is about you making a lifetime commitment. There's something that is worse than dying, and that is never living. So the question is, is Jesus your passion? And if so, what's the vehicle that you use to share that passion? Like we have an opportunity to do something significant as a congregation if we would just all buy into the passion of making disciples, of leading people into faith and repentance and baptizing them and teaching them to go and do the same thing. And maybe you've never experienced that passion. Maybe you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you're wondering how to do that. Like, talk to us. Talk to me. Talk to James. Talk to any of our other leaders. And we will guide you into how to find Jesus as the passion of your life.